0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the 10th round of voting for a new House Speaker today, which breaks a 164-year-long record with more dysfunction and extortion from the far-right radicals of the Freedom Caucus expected tomorrow, the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, that these 20 hostage-takers support along with the big lie of election denial. Joining us is James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and Founder and Former Director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress interest groups and lobbying and campaigns and elections, and his latest book is Congress and, and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying. Then we'll cover the span of 50 years from one whistleblower who brought down a president to another whose testimony might well end up with the sight of Donald Trump carted off in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket. Joining us is Alexander Butterfield, a retired US military officer, public servant and businessman. He served as the Deputy Assistant Mm -hmm. to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973 and he revealed the existence of the White House taping system on July 13th of 1973 during the Watergate scandal investigation. And from 1973 to 1975, he served as the administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration. He's the co-author with Bob Woodward of the book The Last of the President's Men, which inspired Cassidy Hutchinson to ditch her lawyer from Trump world and tell the truth to the January 6th committee. Then finally, we'll examine Israel's new far-right government, which Netanyahu may not be able to control, just as Kevin McCarthy is learning the hard way with the Freedom Caucus. Joining us is Dr. Guy Ziv, a professor at American University School of International Service, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations and Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading non-profit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. We'll discuss the future of Israeli democracy under Netanyahu, who models himself on Hungary's Viktor Orban as Bibi moves to dismantle the judiciary, control the press, and make himself leader for life.
1: And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America.
0: And joining us now is James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and Founder and former Director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections. And his latest book is Congress and Diaspora Politics, the Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Thurber.
2: It's good to be here. Welcome back to the United States.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and of course you're referring to the fact that on Monday I was on a 12-hour, 13-hour flight and I picked up a cold. So that's the hazards of Sorry. flying nowadays, right? Um, right. So now we've had no- a ninth round of voting, and this time around it wasn't just Representative Byron Donalds who got 17 votes, but Kevin Hearn got three. So... Now they've nominated McCarthy for a 10th round, and this 10th round will be the longest contest in 164 years. So I guess we're watching history here, James, but it's not a very pleasant sight.
2: Yeah, we're watching history, and this is likely to roll over into a historic date, and that is January 6th. And the people who... Are uh, voting against McCarthy, if you look at them, almost all of them except maybe one, uh, were uh, vote outcome deniers. And if anything, in the last election, the American people all over uh, rejected people like that. Obviously, in some districts, like the districts these people represent, they, they don't. So this fits into to, uh, their approach, their narrative, so to speak. And it's very hard to negotiate with people like that. It's hard to negotiate uh, with, I would call them hostage takers at this point, if you do not know what they want because they don't know what they want. Now, what's next? I think what's next is that there's a new rules package that is being reviewed now by some of these people and by, by others Uh, more moderates in the Republican Party, and that may break the fever. It may be enough to get the votes to get McCarthy in. What's next is we're going to have another vote, maybe uh, a 10th, 11th vote. Uh, I think we'll have to go into tomorrow to figure out what's in that package and see whether that really breaks this crazy cycle.
0: And we're speaking at a little after 5 p.m. Eastern, On Thursday, and of course, as you've pointed out, James, uh, tomorrow is the second anniversary of uh, January the 6th. But so far, the concessions that McCarthy has made to this group of 20 insurrectionists are pretty humiliating. And aren't they dangerous, in a sense, in terms of the functioning of the House? He's embraced measures that would weaken his own speakership considerably. And apparently, he's resisted doing this. You know, now one single lawmaker can force a snap vote to house the speaker. So, talk about being on thin ice.
2: Well, I think the analogy here is a Mephisto deal. Mephisto is a story about doing uh, an agreement with the devil, and uh, it really undermines his power totally. I think the people in this group just don't like the idea of having a leader that's willing to work with a variety of different views and to to bring consensus together. Consensus using compromise is a dirty word to these really far-right Republicans at this point, and that makes it very difficult to deal with them. But maybe this new rules package will help. Um, There are rumors— that even some of the Republicans are talking to uh, some of the Democrats to, if it's necessary to reach out and have a power-sharing agreement. I think that's probably not going to happen, but it's out there in the ether at this point.
0: But in terms of the new rules package, apparently McCarthy is already committed to allowing this Freedom Caucus to select a third of the GOP's members on the Powerful Rules Committee, which controls what legislation reaches the floor. So that's a huge concession.
2: That's a huge concession. A little bit uh, for your listeners, the Rules Committee is very powerful in the House, not in the Senate. It has uh, control of legislation going to the floor, control as to what kinds of amendments are allowed, if any. Many of the bills coming to the floor are so-called closed rules, no amendments. And it's two to one plus one. There are two members from the majority plus one from the majority uh, for every one member uh, of the minority, even though they only have a majority of four. Uh, they have an overwhelming uh, power in the Rules Committee to control the legis- flow of legislation. Now, when you give up three members uh, to this the, the far-right group, Um, it, it really gives a great deal of power to them and it really changes the whole nature of leadership in the House of Representatives.
0: But in terms of the vote, McCarthy's getting about 203 and they're getting 20. So the ratio is so skewed, the idea that they get disproportionate power over the Rules Committee based upon their numbers. So this looks like what John Boehner Referred to as legislative terrorism.
2: Yeah, well, it's—I it, call it hostage taking, and uh, you know, it's like you're taking hostages, and unless you do what I want, uh, give me what what I want, I'm not going. I'm not going to let this thing stop. Um, I think ultimately, I think McCarthy will ultimately continue to go. I think ultimately, at this point, uh, they're will have to be even more rules changes in order to um, get the votes. But uh, really, nobody knows. McCarthy doesn't know at this point, in my opinion. There's no firm deal at this point.
0: He's already agreed, in effect, that anybody, just one lawmaker, can toss him out or do a no-confidence vote, I guess. That would would be what it would be. Right.
2: This goes back to many years, you know, 15 years or so that this has been going on. And finally, in public, the Republican Party is trying to resolve these differences. And it's embarrassing to the party. It doesn't represent the, the majority of the party that are much more moderate. They're conservative. They're, they're conservative moderates. Um, and it happened to Paul Ryan. It happened to Boehner. Uh, and uh, the Freedom Caucus has a great deal of power. The Tea Party before that uh, power. But these people are not even Freedom Caucus people. I mean, they all belong, but they, uh, uh, the Freedom Caucus is, is even supporting, supporting doing deals in order to get this thing through so so that he can win. But
0: what's he winning, though? I mean, if he makes so many concessions to the point where he becomes a powerless speaker on a precipice where just one person can call for his dismissal at any time i mean i guess that's his only strategy right i mean they both seem to be pretty determined both him and the the insurrectionists they're not going to back down particularly gates so and he's not going to back down so the only path forward is more and more compromise right and
2: i think mccarthy yeah mccarthy has given away a great deal of power uh, I think he and the backing of a whole lot of more moderate, practical uh, uh, Republicans realize that, that, that there's no, no exit strategy that's going to work. Uh, They're going to stick with him because he's, they've got, he's the best they can, they can get at this point. If they move on to someone else, uh, they are likely to treat that person the same way and they just don't like the, the structure of leadership in the House of Representatives, and it's going to be hard to, to govern. Uh, if you only have a majority of four and you have a debt limit bill, the potential of, of, uh, of an economic crisis by not passing it, uh, it is really a tough thing for America. Um, plus there's appropriations and all kinds of other things that, that will come up. Uh, there are many things that are that are pretty bipartisan but this group doesn't like anything that's bipartisan they just wanted they want to blow the whole thing up
0: well already though in the previous days compromises have been made and some of them are just alarming getting rid of the magnet and magnetometers so that people can bring weapons on the floor and apparently representative Lauren Bobbitt has been stopped a couple of times trying to bring guns onto the floor which seems to me to be particularly after the January 6th insurrection, seems to be so counterintuitive and so reckless. They've also agreed to rules which will essentially allow for the defunding of the FBI or any government agency that they don't like. And they've also, I think their first piece of agenda was to get rid of the ethics committee. And to my mind, that's like hanging up a shingle saying, we support corruption. I mean,
2: yeah, on the on the ethics thing, I helped back in 2007 and 8. I I helped with the ethics and lobbying reform. I, I worked uh, pro bono for uh, then uh, Senator Obama, and that was a that was a major uh, reform. It was it's called the Office of Congressional Ethics. They still have the ethics committee, but the ethics committee is a split of six and six. So anything that's tied They can't report out of committee. The Office of Congressional Ethics is very important. I've studied it. They've they've really had a positive impact on cleaning up corruption. What they do is they have the right to uh, receive complaints and do investigations and then, after a very careful analysis, publish them and then send that public document to the Ethics Committee, which embarrasses the Ethics Committee into doing things. Now, if they get rid of it, uh, I think we have a huge step backwards in terms of ethics in the House of Representatives.
0: Well, as far as I can remember, uh, James Thurber, there have been more Democrats hauled hold before the Ethics Committee than Republicans, or maybe it's even. But I know a lot of Democrats are nervous about having taken money from that cryptocurrency guy, Sam bankman fried Right. So,
2: so I think that all members, when you push them real hard and they're behind the scenes, most members want to get rid of it. But it has continued. And by the way, Trump heard when he came in that they're trying to get rid of it. And everybody was shocked when he called the Republican leadership when he first was inaugurated and says, no, you must keep the Office of Congressional Ethics. And they did. It was, it was shocking. But um uh, it's it's a very important institution it, it's it's a shame i'm biased about it i'm a reformer i think we should have it it brings more visibility transparency and uh we're going in the wrong direction if we get rid of it but back to your point they have some this is a political science concept wacky ideas in terms of the guns and and defunding the fbi a variety of things that they have on their agenda that is part of the negotiation. Um, if they ever get a speaker, we're going to have many oversight hearings. They have the right to have oversight hearings. We always have more when there's a party opposite party in the White House versus the party in control of the body. Uh, that's our democracy. That's okay. But to but to negotiate ahead of time to defund the FBI is, uh, as I said before, uh, wacky, in my opinion.
0: But have have they also agreed, I think they did early on, to investigate Hunter Biden, Anthony Fauci, Mayorkas at the DHS, etc. Is that, do we know for sure that they've already agreed to these kind of Benghazi type hearings?
2: I think that McCarthy was questioning those things, but I think he's It looks like he's negotiated to allow the people who have uh, the chairs of those committees to go ahead and do that. Um, And I think, you know, with Hunter Biden, it's about um, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which I write about also. He may he may have represented uh, interests in Ukraine and China and he should have registered and he didn't. But on the others, it's um, Fauci, for most people, is a hero and uh, if they have hearings, he uh, should be embraced as someone who really saved hundreds of thousands of lives because of his efforts.
0: Conversely, President Trump cost millions, at least a million lives. He could make a case, surely.
2: Well, I don't know if he caused them, but he certainly delayed doing what needed to be done in order to save hundreds of thousands of lives. And uh, Fauci was on the other side of it. it. was very hard for him, I know. So, excuse
0: me, James, if I think this is insane. It's not the silly season. It's This is kind of organized insanity, isn't it? I mean, nihilism, I guess. What would you describe this activity going on? And, of course, it may culminate on the anniversary of January the 6th, and as you pointed out earlier, most of these uh, 20... Insurrectionists both supported the insurrection and have stuck with the big lie.
2: Yeah, it's it, it is insanity. I, I think that maybe of the twenty, they should go back and take a third grade ethics and uh, civics course to understand what's in the Constitution and understand how this how our democracy works. Our democracy is always needed. Uh, members in the legislative body that compromise and compromise is not a dirty word. They think it is, but they don't have an alternative to that. The 20 uh, it is, uh, you know, you have to go back to the, to, to the mid 1800s now uh, to find a, a similar uh, situation. Uh, it was 1923 for nine votes, but we're beyond that now Uh I don't know if they can learn, but notice that there are some people, Jim Jordan and others, who really seem to be uh, way out there, far right, unwilling to compromise. That are now learning that in order to get something done, you've got you've got to compromise. And so he's supporting McCarthy. Uh, Green is supporting McCarthy. Uh, my theory is that. Once these 20 get in, if they ever uh, can get in here, they'll begin to understand how the place works. It doesn't mean that they're going to be corrupted. It means that they understand how they can try to get their agenda done. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, reducing spending uh, and uh, trying to have a balanced budget. Uh, maybe it's shrinking the bureaucracy, but they, But in order to do that, they have to understand how the place works, and they have to understand that you need leaders, and you need leaders that can bring together um, coalitions to support uh, voting for these things. With a majority of four, it's going to be hard to get anything done. Remember Ryan, when he was Speaker, and he was criticized by the far right for this, in order to get major legislation done, and I've written about this, 38 major bills, including getting rid of No Child Left Behind and a bunch of other things, he had to reach out and get votes from the Democratic Party. If anything's going to get done in this next Congress, uh, the new speaker, if it's McCarthy, he eventually is going to have to reach out and work with the Democrats, and I think that's what these 20 don't want. Right.
0: Well, just in closing, given the alarm that's expressed on Fox News, by Sean Hannity and others, that this is a terrible look for the GOP. Do you think the American people are paying attention? Do you think this is hurting the GOP?
2: I think it's hurting the GOP. I think Trump has hurt the GOP. I think this polarization has hurt uh, the GOP. Uh, And I think that uh, that, uh, Mitch McConnell, minority leader in the Senate, is going to be the face of the GOP, he's going to have to lead, and he's going to have to lead uh, with legislation that can be pushed through the House of Representatives. This is going to be very hard. I I don't expect much leadership from the Republicans uh, out of the House of Representatives once they get a speaker.
0: Well, James Thurber, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: My pleasure, and I hope you get well. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I've had a
0: couple of COVID tests, so I it's just a cold, but I do see Make sure
2: that odd, you odd. drink lots of tea with lemon.
0: <laughs> okay. Thank you, Doctor Thurber. <laughs> and again <laughs> see I've been speaking See you later. And again I've been speaking with James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, DC. He's the author of numerous books and more than eighty articles and chapters on Congress interest groups and lobbying and campaigns and elections. And his latest book is Congress and Diaspora Politics The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying, covering the span of 50 years from one whistleblower who brought down a president to another whose testimony might well end up with the side of Donald Trump carted off in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masterson. This is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Butterfield, who's a retired US military officer, public servant and businessman. He served as the deputy assistant to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973, and he revealed the existence of the White House taping system on July the 13th of 1973 during the Watergate scandal investigation. And from 1973 to 1975, he served as administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration, and he's the co-author, with Bob Woodward, of the book, The Last of the President's Men. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Butterfield. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Alex. And uh, you've had some Zoom meetings with Cassidy Hutchinson, and it's an amazing story that spans 50 years, that you testified against President Nixon reluctantly, but you did, and prior to that it was John Dean's word against all the president's men, and you provided, in fact, evidence of a taping system which provided the evidence. So, And now, 50 years later, this young White House aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, feels essentially inspired by you. She bought two copies of your book that you did with Bob Woodwell, The Last of the Presence Men and devoured <laughs> them and, and that gave her the courage to do the right thing and tell the truth. So it's an amazing story and um, I find it inspiring.
3: Well, yeah, it's an interesting story. I, it, I, have, I have a little trouble believing, although I'm I'm pleased that I inspired someone to, you know, go ahead and do the right thing. And she's, she's quite a young lady. I've come to know her a little bit. We've done a zoom or two and, but I, <laughs> I, I still get a kick out. Of it. I think I've heard that, that she ordered, ordered three copies of the book and bought and read it three times and that sort of thing. I can't can't imagine someone staying with the story that long. <laughs> but, uh, no, she's, she's been very uh, complimentary, and uh, I've come to know her a bit, and I like her very much.
0: Well, she was, I don't know whether you felt this way, but she apparently felt torn between her own conscience and the powerful men, particularly the president. Is that a feeling that you shared at the time? That you were torn between your own conscience, telling the truth, and the powerful men that you you had served.
3: Uh, Ian, I don't ever recall being torn. I don't know whether that was I'd been around a little bit longer. I knew I knew where I stood with the president, and I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't concerned about those things. Right. I, I was. Yeah, when the, when the Nixon administration came in, yeah, I I was I I came in that same day with the Nixon administration as uh, deputy White House chief of staff to Bob Haldeman. So right from the start, I had uh, a fairly senior position, and uh, it was kind of smooth sailing. Right. And you were the only holdover from the Johnson
0: administration, right? They made sure there was nobody in the White House from the Johnson administration, but you had served in in the Johnson administration, had you not?
3: Yes. No. I I I, I was. I I was a military assistant in the immediate office of the Secretary of Defense during the, uh, much much of the Johnson administration. So I did. Come to know Johnson pretty well, and uh, so I was a so I, as I said, I was the one of the military assistants to McNamara, who was then the sec- Secretary of Defense. Right. Well, tell me then, in your conversations
0: with Cassidy, I mean, it's an amazing story that initially she was worried about; she didn't have the money f- to find a lawyer. And she went to see her estranged uh, biological father who she wasn't close to and begged him for money and he wouldn't to help her out. And then she went to an aunt and uncle who happened to be QAnon believers and they offered to mortgage their house and she didn't feel comfortable with that. And so she went along with the Trump lawyer, Stefan Passantino, who basically prepped her like a mafia lawyer you know don't say anything and stay in the family <laughs> i mean it's it, i I, su- I suspect this guy's going to be in trouble what do you think
3: yes i from what i read he's already in trouble
0: so she's basically reached a point where she kept you know they kept telling her to say uh, i don't recall i don't recall and she got increasingly uncomfortable and then decided about what she called the mirror test can i look at myself in the mirror and that's when she got in a car to drive to new jersey at the same time googling watergate and finding your name so <laughs> that's how it began um it's an amazing story
3: yeah well it is <laughs> it is it is interesting and uh, i've enjoyed uh, meeting her and yes yeah, and she's She's very uh, I- impressive. That well, was would. my first impression. Anyway, when I when I saw her give her testimony, there was something about her demeanor. I guess is the word, and uh, the, the way she handled herself, it was very professional. And as I mentioned to uh, w- Woodward the uh, the other day. <laughs> Yeah, because Woodward got in got into this thing because she said she read Woodward's book about me, which is called "The Last of the President's Men." Yeah,
0: she read the book, and, and then she, did she contact uh, Woodward? Did she? She contacted you, obviously.
3: Yeah, well, I yeah, I helped. I called uh, Woodward, and he was very nice. I think he he signed a book for her sent the book to me, and I signed it. So she got a book with both of our autographs on it. It was just an, an interesting and a very pleasant uh, few weeks there for a while. Did you write any
0: inscription on the book?
3: Yeah, I did. And and so did Bob, just something very complimentary
0: mm-hmm. and brief. <laughs> well, in the span of history, though, obviously, if you compare Watergate to the January sixth insurrection, it pales in seriousness. I mean, arguably the January sixth insurrection, and after all, tomorrow is the second anniversary of January the sixth. It could be compared to the Civil War in terms of the the very <laughs> citadel of democracy was you know, the last time it was a, attacked attack was by the British in eighteen fourteen. So it's a pretty heavy event, is it not? How would you compare the two?
3: Well, uh, I, I I agree. It's uh, it'll it'll be remembered in history, uh, and I don't think that's an overstatement. I'm not ashamed of the very small part I played. So I would agree with your assessment. And
0: and do you think that Cassidy's testimony might have a similar effect as your testimony had? I mean, she was a very credible witness and. It looks like they're going to indict Trump on a number of counts. So, yeah,
3: well, yeah, I think it's a, I don't know if it's a major item, but it's an important item, and she's an important witness, and uh, she's going to handle herself very well throughout.
0: Right, but in terms of comparing the presidents, Nixon and Trump, I know we've spoken before that you always admired nixon's incredible competence he was he really was good at the job whereas trump is probably the most unqualified reckless president we've ever had and i'm sure the history books will say that but the one thing you told me once that you were a little upset with nixon over was that he cheated on his taxes well compare that to donald trump's <laughs> che- cheating on his taxes right <laughs>
3: Yeah, but that, that didn't go over. Right, Nixon. Yeah, Nixon uh, wasn't perfect, and uh, but you know I got to know the guy so well. It was I was uh, I was probably torn from time to time, uh, and uh, uh, and defended him when. To to
0: do so was questionable, right? But you you were in a barber barbershop at which hotel was it? Now I can't remember. The Mayflower was it? When you got the call from the uh, the committee to testify, and you you're on your way to I think you're on your way to Moscow for the FAA to, to improve the airport in Moscow so that would the Air Force One arrived, it would uh, land safely. So I recall that you were basically told, you better come over here, right? Was Is that how it happened? Uh, by whom? By Haldeman? No, no, by, this is on, on the committee by by Sam Irvin, I think it was.
3: Oh, you, yeah. Yeah, the Watergate committee.
0: Right. Yeah, so you were... A reluctant witness, right? You didn't, you didn't volunteer for the job.
3: No, no, I did not. Right. I was, yeah, I was, uh, I was very comfortable there. I, I guess at this time, I was the deputy White House chief of staff
4: Mm -hmm.
3: to Haldeman, beginning on the first day of the Nixon administration, and uh, remains in that position for three years, and only then did I leave the White House and went to the Federal Aviation Administration as, as the administrator.
0: Well, but did you, while you were there right next to the Oval Office, were you aware of what was later became the testimony of John Dean?
3: Yeah, I think I was aware of everything that was going on. Everything.
0: Right. Yeah. That's what happened, right? John Dean, it was his word against everybody, and um, Nixon probably would have survived, but for the fact that you came forward and provided evidence that there was a, a record. But did you get a feeling, though, from Cassidy's testimony, particularly when the lawyers kept telling her that they they tried to bribe her by promising jobs and stuff like that that, as I mentioned earlier, lawyer sounded sounded like a mafia lawyer. I mean, how do you see the the Trump administration in in the span of history? As much as Richard Nixon was vilified, I don't think there's a comparison. I think Trump is a whole new level of criminality.
3: Well, that's true, and I'm no fan of that guy, and I think he's he is the worst possible person that I can imagine in the position I look back and I cannot believe that he became the president of the United States. Uh, I have no use for the guy. I think he was sort of a born criminal and uh, cannot be trusted in any position of uh,
0: the government. One of the things that's extraordinary about the transcripts that were just released on Sunday is the conversation between Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, where Nancy Pelosi is asking General Milley to call Vice President Pence and invoke the 25th Amendment because she was worried that Trump would use the nuclear button in a desperate effort to stay in in power, and she said to Millie, you know, Trump is crazy, right? And Millie said, yes, he's crazy. But he assured her (laughs) that the nuclear codes were in safe hands, so you were around the football a lot when you were there right next door to Richard Nixon. I mean, isn't that amazing, don't you think, Alex, the idea that a president of the United States was so mentally unstable, that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Speaker of the House were concerned that he might use nuclear weapons in order to stay in power. I mean, I find that absolutely amazing.
3: Well, it is, but, but it's factual, yeah. I, I agree with you.
0: Well, I thank yeah. you for joining us. I thank you for your re-emergence in history, Alex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this... <laughs> role that you just played obviously it made a big difference to Cassidy Hutchinson who was a very frightened lonely woman and she summoned the courage to do the right thing and you and Bob Woodward helped her in that endeavor so
3: I I, yeah I think we did and yeah she had a lot more to worry about in the in her position it was similar to mine yes it was she was Working for the uh, White House staff. chief of staff, yeah. yeah, and and getting all kinds of uh, advice, and uh, I think it uh, she was getting almost too much.
0: Right. Well, we will um, we will see whether her testimony. Um, I think it, it definitely was the most powerful piece of testimony from that long inquiry and already there have been criminal referrals so at some point or other we may see Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit just in closing do you you think that's a possibility
3: (coughs) I've got my fingers crossed
0: (laughs) okay Alex well I thank you so much for joining us I appreciate it
3: oh thank you Ian
0: And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Butterfield, who's a retired U.S. military officer, public servant, and businessman. He served as the deputy assistant to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973, and he revealed the existence of the White House taping system on July 13th of 1973 during the Watergate scandal investigation. And from 1973 to 1975, he served as administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration, and he's the co-author with Bob Woodward of the book, The Last of the President's Men. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining Israel's new far-right government, which Netanyahu may not be able to control, just as Kevin McCarthy is learning the hard way with the Freedom Caucus. And joining us now, Dr. Guy Ziv, an associate professor at American University School of International Service, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations and Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He's worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Guy Ziv. Uh,
5: Thank you for having me back. Good to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Guy, and the new Israeli minister for the police and the border police made a provocative uh, visit recently to the Temple Mount. But he's not the only uh, radical in this uh, fairly far-right-wing government that Benjamin Netanyahu has formed. There's also Benzel Smothrich and Avi Moyes, who belong to an ultra-nationalist party, and wants to purge Israel's education system, civil service, and media of liberals, feminists, and LGBTQ people. So we know that Netanyahu himself, if, he's probably an atheist, I think. He hasn't denied the fact that he is. So how's he going to manage this coalition, particularly with far-right religious figures?
5: Right, well... um I don't know if if Netanyahu is atheist, but he's certainly a secular and has uh, little in common um, uh, with some of his coalition partners. Um, So I think that the real story of these last elections and and of his new government is the rise of the radical right. And so you mentioned Bezalel Smotrich, he's the new finance minister who was given expanded authority over civilian policy in the West Bank, which includes Palestinians and settlers. Uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the far-right extremist who um, who uh, went to the Temple Mount the other day, and and others uh, who are of kind of similar uh, similar ilk, and um, the the one person who's really responsible for the radical right success is, is Netanyahu because he orchestrated their entry into uh, the Knesset. Uh, Ben-Gvir was just a marginal fringe figure uh, before Netanyahu. Uh, helped uh, orchestrate this merger so that uh, he would have enough seats, enough mandates to form a coalition. And uh, But by doing so, he also legitimized him and his party and their uh, very extremist worldview. Uh, I think what's different this time around, um, this is, uh, I, I believe, Netanyahu's sixth, uh, this will be his sixth term in office. He's uh, the longest-serving uh, prime minister in Israel's history. I think what's different this time around is he's not quite in the driver's seat. So it's not really clear that he's going to be able to withstand the sort of demands and the pressure from his coalition partners. His hands are are somewhat tied because he needs this coalition to stay in power and to stay out of prison in light of uh, his ongoing criminal trial.
0: But does that mean that he, as a as been suggested in an article by Aloof Ben, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz, Netanyahu Unbound, Israel Gets Its Most Right-Wing Government History. He's saying that, that Netanyahu wants to bring Israel closer to authoritarian states like Hungary, Poland, and Turkey, and he wants to be the Israel version of Viktor Orban, neutralizing the judiciary, controlling the media, and making it all but impossible for Israelis to vote him out of power. Did you buy that? I do. Uh,
5: I think the most significant policy change that we're seeing is this government's attempts to uh, basically gut the Supreme Court. Um, His new justice minister issued a series of proposals last night. Uh, They're calling it reforms. But what they're really doing is uh, weakening uh, the independence or eliminating really the independence of the judiciary um, upending Israel's very delicate checks and balances, and they're going to basically allow elected officials to overturn uh, important rulings by the Supreme Court, even with just a simple majority, perhaps. So, um, so uh, what they're what they're doing, in, in in short, simply put, is attacking Israeli democracy. Um, Israeli democracy is in danger.
0: And in terms of foreign policy. Apparently, Netanyahu spoke recently with President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine and asked him to abstain from a UN vote that would mandate that the International Criminal Court issue a legal opinion on Israeli behavior in the occupied Palestinian territories. And Zelensky went along with that, hoping to have a quid pro quo, because we know that Zelensky desperately wants the Iron Dome anti-missile system but instead of getting that in response for abstaining in that vote uh, at the request of Netanyahu, now Israel's foreign minister has been meeting with uh, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, particularly after he has essentially been person non grata after making the most outrageous anti-Semitic remarks. So... Does that signal a shift, uh, a pro-Russian shift?
5: So you're referring to the call the other day between uh, Israel's new foreign minister, Eli Cohen, and uh, Sergei Lavrov, Russian's foreign minister. And so, right. uh, so some have suggested that this does uh, signal a, a major policy shift. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think this really, what it really indicates is just the inexperience and lack of qualifications of the new Israeli foreign minister more than it does any real policy shift. We know that Netanyahu and Putin have a good relationship. This is something Netanyahu used to highlight, I would say, with much pride before last year's uh, in Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine. Um, he doesn't enjoy the same kind of relationship with Zelensky. Uh, there's kind of mutual mistrust, if not antipathy, at, at the very least mistrust. And But it's really not clear yet if there's going to be any real policy shift. Um, when Cohen said, we will talk less after his call with uh, Lavrov, Lindsey Graham, of all people, Senator Graham, attacked it and said it was a bit unnerving. But again, I think this really just speaks more to um, to uh, the new Israeli foreign minister's uh, inexperience here. I think for as far as Netanyahu is concerned, I think his preference is to say and do as little as possible on this issue. So unless he is uh, really pressured to provide more aid to Zelensky, I think he's going to be laying low on this.
0: Is there any pressure coming in Israel? I mean, what kind of influence does the uh, Russian emigre community have, which is fairly substantial? And you recall, back when uh, Clinton was president, he got into trouble by suggesting that Israel has moved to the right because of all the Russians that have arrived in Israel. That's right.
5: But I think in this case, uh, you have widespread sympathy for Ukraine in Israel. And uh, this cuts across political lines as well. Um, Many Jews from the former Soviet Union were actually from Ukraine as well. And some even went back to volunteer and and join uh, the Ukrainian army uh, this past year. So, I think there is definitely support for Ukraine. Uh, whether this translates into uh, significant pressure on Netanyahu, is, is it's a little bit too soon to tell. Um, but there's also the, the question of external pressure, right? Uh, if President Biden decides this is a priority, he may ask uh, Netanyahu to do more. So uh, that remains to be seen.
0: Well, Biden probably doesn't want to get involved in a spat with uh, Netanyahu, right?
5: He doesn't I mean, want to get involved in a, in a public spat, but that doesn't mean that um, he's not going to try to use his leverage in private talks to convey certain priorities he has.
0: Well, there's no doubt about Biden's priorities in terms of uh, helping Ukraine. And it is hard to understand why Israel would not be supporting the Jewish president of this embattled country.
5: That's right. But there's also different ways to support it. And I think what um, Netanyahu is reluctant to do is to provide any kind of military equipment as opposed to humanitarian assistance.
0: And that's what the new Prime Minister, Eli Khan, has said. So there was an interesting meeting that took place uh, on the last day that Obama was in the White House. He invited a number of the press uh, to have a kind of off-the-record conversation, and it was reported recently in Bloomberg, and one of the things that he said in being asked, what concerns you in the future, since you was leaving office, and he said, Putinism, Obama said, I'm concerned about Putinism, meaning Putin's becoming more nationalistic and more imperialistic and more fascist, if you like, and he said that, and it's not just Putin that represents Putinism. It's Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel. So what do you make of that remark?
5: Well, I think we've seen over the years this alliance between um, uh, Putin and Netanyahu and Bolsonaro and Orban and kind of other authoritarian leaders. Um, We saw this uh, especially during the Trump years, uh, Bolsonaro, of course, is out of the picture right now, but uh, Orban is still there, Putin is still there, uh, and Netanyahu just made a comeback. And so I think that uh, they, they, we definitely see are seeing um, kind of this uneasy alliance between these authoritarian leaders. I think with Netanyahu, he, of course, needs to be very careful to strike the right balance as he sees it between um, his cordial relations uh, and, and and kind of seeing eye to eye on some issues with these leaders and, of course, Israel's most important relationship, which is uh, by far the United States. And so I think he's going to emphasize his relationship with Putin a little bit less, given uh, the geopolitical changes of the last year. But that doesn't mean that he is uh, going to stand up uh, against these authoritarian leaders. On the contrary, he's going to uh, continue to work with them.
0: So in terms of the Palestinians, though, it doesn't look good, does it, in terms of of any possibility of any agreements? And you've certainly spent a lot of time on that portfolio, guy. So you've got the Palestinian leader who's 87 years old. He seems to be pretty much out of touch. Is there a possibility that young Palestinians uh, will become more radical what other path is there for them?
5: Well, they are in a very unfortunate position right now because uh, the rest of the world seems to be ignoring their plight. Uh, and that includes Arab leaders who've entered into the Abraham Accords who have been in the process of normalizing relations with Israel, notwithstanding uh, the fact that Palestinians are still uh, stateless and, and kind of live, in, uh, live under occupation. So... I'm not seeing any real uh, hope for progress here. I think um, the real question is, um, is Israel moving towards this kind of binational reality with uh, demographics that point to kind of a 50-50 split and perhaps in the near future a Palestinian majority between uh, the uh, Mediterranean and the Jordan uh, River? Um, And so what uh, many in the Israeli security establishment are trying to uh, promote um and i would say the biden administration is on board with this is to kind of keep taking steps to keep the two-state solution alive even though it is highly unlikely that uh peace talks are going to be revived anytime in the near future you may recall that they collapsed the last time uh netanyahu was in power uh, and that was back in 2014. uh so several several terms ago for Netanyahu, um, and uh, they haven't been revived uh, since because Netanyahu has focused his attention on uh, the kind of outer circle, um, which includes uh, the Arab leaders. Uh, Saudi Arabia would, of course, be the ultimate prize, but uh, they've made it clear they're not going to sign on uh, to these Abraham Accords unless the Palestinians get their own state. So I definitely don't see that happening anytime soon.
0: Well, there's been a bit of backlash, hasn't it, from the Arab states, including Jordan and the UAE, over Ben Gvir's visit to the Temple Mount. They're not happy about it, and I'd, again, you wonder how Netanyahu is going to navigate that. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it, Guy, that the JCPOA, the P5 Plus One deal with Iran, is is pretty much dead, right? But my understanding is that Russia's position in Syria is becoming. Weaker because of the general position that they have vis a vis Ukraine, where they're getting whipped and uh, their own former republics uh, are becoming more, more and more independent. Apparently, Iran is more assertive now in Syria. So, how do you see him navigating that, wanting to secure the Abraham Accords at the same time, have this wild card of these ultra nationalist religious figures? Basically, taunting the uh, Palestinians. Well, the
5: Abraham Accords uh, is really the Net- Netanyahu's legacy, and so his desire, uh, and I think he really does desire this, is uh, to build upon these accords. As I mentioned earlier, getting uh, getting the Saudis on board would be ideal, and and maybe some of the other smaller Gulf states as well that haven't yet signed on. But uh, how he balances uh, their demands with the demands of his coalition partners remains to be seen. Is he really going to serve as the brakes on some of the more radical, uh, aggressive proposals by his coalition partners? And I'm not sure he can do that. As I mentioned kind of at the, earlier in this call, um, he's no longer really in the driver's seat. He needs this coalition. This is his get out of jail card. Um, and so it, without this coalition, uh, he's in deep trouble personally and politically. Um, maybe on some of the more radical uh, items on their agenda, for example, annexation or annexation of uh, Area C or most of Area C, um, I, I think he may he may ask his coalition partners to hold off on that because he realizes that doing that might actually tear the Abraham Accords apart, which he doesn't want to do. But it's going to be very difficult, very difficult for him to kind of navigate this.
0: Well, it's, it's, it sounds like that. Yeah, In a similar position as Kevin McCarthy.
5: (laughs) Well, I think at this point, Kevin, uh, the the speakers, uh, how many votes have they had now? Six. So they've surpassed they've surpassed Israeli elections. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) Well, I thank you for joining us, and I appreciate it very much.
5: You're welcome. Thanks for having me on.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Guy Zib, who's a professor at American University School of International Service, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations, the Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and he's worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading non organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. It is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel.
1: This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org